Well, good morning, Southwinds. It's great to see you. Before we continue our study in the book of Joshua, I have an exciting announcement that I want to share with you. Uh, This past week, we have called a brand new worship pastor, and we're looking forward to him joining us. His name is David Pete, and I want to introduce you to him and his family today. Uh, David is married to Evie, and they have a daughter named Aria. Uh, They're going to be with us in just a few weeks. David's going to be here actually in three weeks. Uh, Evie and Aria will follow shortly after that. They currently live in Orlando, Florida. And uh, David has has served in churches in Oregon and in Florida and in South Carolina. And we're really excited to have them. And uh, I know you're going to be excited to meet them. Their first Sunday or David's first Sunday is going to be uh, December 2nd. You will want to make sure that you are here Uh, for that Sunday. So can we celebrate, church? Are we excited about this? Amen. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Joshua 6. And as you do that, I do want to take a moment to uh, thank you for all of your prayers uh, for me and my family. If you did not hear, uh, my my dad, Wayne Nolan, uh, died on November the 1st. And last Sunday, I wasn't here. Uh, I was leading and preaching uh, at his memorial service in Concord. And these past days have been hard days, of course, but I want to tell you this morning, God is good. And along with our grief and our loss, uh, we are rejoicing in the knowledge, in the hope that uh, my dad is in the presence of his Lord and Savior, uh, who he served as a, a pastor for over 50 years. Uh, my family is also grateful to know of all the people here at Southwinds that have been praying uh, for us. A few days ago, I asked my mom, who, by the way, was married to my dad for over 59 years. Um, I asked her how she was doing, and she said it was hard, but she knew that Jesus is with her. And then she said this. She said um, she knew more grief was going to come. But she said, right now, it kind of feels like I'm floating on prayers. (laughs) And it was kind of her way of saying that she knew she was being buoyed up by people like yourselves and others all around uh, this area and around the world who knew what had happened um, and were praying for for her and uh, for us. And I want to tell you, I feel the same. And I want to say to you, thank you. I'm really grateful uh, for who you are and uh, what you mean to, to me and to my family. Now, we are in Joshua 6 this week, and so we kind of need to change gears for a moment because I need you to help me out a little bit here. And so this is going to require some smiles and celebration. And by the way, my dad would want us to be celebrating, just in case you're wondering, because he's not sad. You know, my dad is filled with more joy than he's ever known before in his life. This is the hope we have. So in that spirit, I want to introduce this chapter to you. Like this. Um, I was thinking this week about a song that we used to sing in Sunday school. And I don't think we teach our kids this song anymore because I went to Sunday school back when the dinosaurs roamed the earth. Um, But some of you did too. And so you're going to know this song. And I really need you to help me out as I sing a little bit of this song. Are you ready? Uh, That's not real confidence. So I'm going to have to step out in faith. All right. Are you ready? Okay. Here's the song. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. 
Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. That's pretty amazing. Give yourself a hand right there, okay? You guys did great. Um, you know that song, and that song is a lie. Now, Jericho is real, Joshua is real, but that song gets one crucial fact about Joshua and Jericho utterly wrong. Now, I'm not going to tell you uh, what it is quite yet. I want to see if you can figure it out on your own as we go through this message, uh, see if you can guess. But that's the story we're looking at today, Joshua 6, the story of Joshua and the battle of Jericho. Quick recap, uh, the time is around 1400 B.C., You'll remember that the Israelites have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God has rescued them. God has brought them out of Egypt. He has brought them to the border of the land he has promised them, the promised land of Canaan. But the problem is for them to get anywhere in Canaan, they first have to get past Jericho. And Jericho is a fortress city with one distinct feature, incredibly well-engineered walls. So to conquer the rest of Canaan, Joshua and Israel must get past those walls. So here's the question this morning. What do you do when you face a wall? Anybody here have any walls in your life that need to come down? Maybe you're facing a wall right now and it is in your marriage or maybe it's in your business or maybe it's in your ministry where you're serving people. Maybe it's in your relationship with your kids or maybe with your friends and you want to quit. You're not seeing results. You don't want to go one step further. See, there are times in my life even, even as a pastor, maybe maybe you don't think this ever happens to pastor. Maybe you think pastors just, you know, like, live up here at the church where all the angels fly around all the time. But I'll just let you know something. I have to to serve people like you, so it's not like that. Um, And, you know, sometimes even as pastors, we get discouraged. It seems like what we're doing is not really working. People may not really be listening to what we're trying to encourage them to do. It seems like lives aren't really changing. And, And maybe you hear that and you think, that's crazy, Mike. But, you know, if you told me, where you felt like you were hitting the wall, maybe I would think that that was crazy too. Because we can all feel like quitting or like the challenges that we're facing are too hard. We're all going to face walls time and time again in life. And usually the truth is we didn't choose the wall, but the wall is there. And we don't think it will ever fall fall down. You know, we need to realize that facing a wall is not a choice. You're going to face them but your choice will be in how you choose to face them, how you face them, whether you face them with fear and anxiety or, or self-pity, or whether you face them with courage and confidence in God. That makes all the difference. And Joshua 6 shows us how we can face the walls in our life in a way that glorifies God and, and that also helps us to grow more like Jesus. I want to read verses 1 through 5 of Joshua 6. Follow along as we listen to God's word. It says, Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. And then he gives them very detailed instructions, verses 3 through 5. March around the city once, just once. With all the armed men, do this for how many days? Six days. And have how many priests? 
seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark on the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up every man straight in. Now, be honest, okay? Have you ever read this and wondered if it was true? You're in church, okay? So if you're not going to be honest with me, you know that God's watching and he knows your heart. But have you ever read this and wondered, is this like a myth? I mean, this doesn't seem real. And is there any way to know if this story is true? Well, truth is there wasn't any proof for this story until about 80 years ago. And in something that kind of sounds like an episode from Raiders of the Lost Ark, in the 1930s, uh, British archaeologist and adventurer John Garstang and his, his team, mostly of Bedouins, they decided that they were going to excavate in the tiny Arab village of Tel Es Sultan. It was a date plantation, and it had this small, strange hill right in the middle of the village. And for centuries, people thought that this hill, this mound, was just a geological, natural feature. But these archaeologists believed that this mound hid the lost city of Jericho. And so they started digging, and this is exactly what they found. They uncovered the Jericho of the Bible. And we know today this is one of the oldest uh, cities in human history. It's been uh, continuously uh, habitated for nine or 10,000 years. But when people started hearing that some archaeologists were uncovering uh, Jericho, that they discovered it, they also started wondering if their digging would prove or disprove the Bible's story of a city whose walls suddenly came tumbling down. So what did they discover? Well, today, Jericho is a small town that, interestingly enough, is actually a lot like Palm Springs. And if you've been to Palm Springs or anywhere in the Coachella Valley, then you can easily picture Jericho because it's a lot like that. Not as big, but it's an oasis on the edge of a desert. There's lots of palm trees. Uh, Dates are its primary crop, just like Coachella Valley And it even has an aerial tram like Palm Springs, like you can see in this picture. Now, the the first archaeologists, they discovered remains of a walled city. And what they found both confirms and helps us understand the account in Jericho or uh, in Joshua about Jericho. For example, here's some details. Jericho had a double wall. It had an outer wall that, that stood an incredible 23 feet high. Just imagine being, you know, in front of that wall. And then it had an inner wall that was over 30 feet high. Between those two walls were dirt ramparts which sloped up from the uh, inner, inner wall to, uh, yeah, inner wall, excuse me, I'm saying this wrong, from the outer wall to the inner wall. And uh, they, they designed it this way intentionally to be a trap for invading armies. If somehow they, they made it over the first wall, well, they would have to now, now climb another hill, another slope, and the archers could just easily pick them off you know, from the inner wall as they tried to get up the second wall. See, as a result, for centuries, Jericho had been impregnable. No one had ever breached those walls. They also discovered some other interesting details. In the middle of that uh, earthen or dirt rampart, 
at different places, they found small homes, probably homes of the poor, uh, small businesses, sometimes like brothels. They actually found rooms built into that in-between section between the two walls. And this is likely precisely what we saw in Joshua 2. You remember this a few weeks ago when we, we studied about Rahab and the prostitute, how her house was part of the city wall. Even more fascinating, uh, the diggers then found what initially was a complete mystery in the ruins. They found jar after jar filled with what had been freshly harvested grain, and it was completely untouched. All these jars full of grain, dozens, dozens of jars, and all this grain was burned and never used. Now, why would anyone harvest grain and then burn it up unused? Well, as they thought about it, they realized it confirmed several details uh, from the Bible. Remember when we talked uh, two weeks ago about the Israelites crossing the Jordan River, how we were told in chapter 4 that the, the, the river was swollen, it was overflowing its banks because it was harvest time. See, these jars were full of spring grain. The Bible describes the siege, as we're going to see, as short, lasting only a week. And that's why the jars would have still been full. So as they knew that the Israelites were coming, they, they figured they would besiege the city. And so they gathered in grain. They got it all inside the city, you know, thinking there's going to be a long siege. that They're going to have to be able to have food inside the city. But then the siege lasts only a week. And so they didn't need to eat the food. They never ate the grain. And then the Bible tells us later in Joshua 6 that the city was completely burned after it fell. So that's why these jars were filled with burned grain. And there's just so many details that we know uh, like this. Uh, but the most fascinating detail that they discovered was this. They found that in a cataclysmic event, the walls of Jericho had tipped over outward. They'd fallen down outward. The Upper walls had crashed down the slopes of the rampart, crashed into the uh, outer walls, knocked them down, broke them, and thus formed a ramp right up into the center of the city, exactly the way that Joshua 6 describes it. And for the first time in centuries, the city of Jericho fell. Now, all of the archaeology agrees with all these details I've just shared with you. None of this is really controversial to anyone who knows the field. But one question remains in dispute, and that is the date. When did this happen? Did it happen around the time of Joshua? Well, John Garstang, he concluded yes. But there were many other archaeologists who said no. They dated the ruins uh, from about 150 years before Joshua, too early for what the Bible tells us. So there was this dispute. But then in 1990, uh, works were published. Another expert had studied this, and the New York Times broke the story. Here's the headline. I love this. Believers score. Don't you love it when we score? <laughs> Believers score in battle over the battle of Jericho. So this dispute among scholars, this tells us, and that the initial quote in this article says this, after years of doubt among archaeologists, a new analysis of excavations has yielded a wide range of evidence supporting the biblical account about the fall of Jericho. Don't you just love this? I mean, I, I love this stuff. I, I was going to say I dig this, but I was afraid some of you who think you have the spiritual gift of booing and hissing 
would try to exercise your gifts. So I didn't say that. But I will say, so let's just dig even deeper than the archaeologists into the meaning of the story right now. You can groan if you would like to. Let's look at what the story says about our lives and walls in our lives today. Maybe you're here today and you're just feeling like God has called you to grow in him. You, you know there's a promised land God wants to give you. There's things he wants you to experience in your life. And you, you know what those things are. It's like you have your sights set on them. But right now in this moment, you have run into a wall and you're not making progress and you feel like you want to quit. Well, this story is going to show you some things you need to hear. And I want to let you know ahead of time uh, some of you may be thinking, okay, this is going to be one of those motivational pep talks where somebody just tells me, don't give up, you know, you can do it. And I'm sick of stuff like that. I don't want to hear anything like that. I'll just let you know you're not going to hear anything like that because that's not what this story is about. What you need to hear about is actually what the story talks about, which is God and his faithfulness. This story is actually not about Joshua. It is not about his military expertise or his courage or his determination. It's not about, you know, one man facing a wall. This is a story about God. It's about God. This is a story about how God is always faithful to all his promises. And this is something that applies to believers today. 2 Corinthians 1.20 is a wonderful verse. You should memorize this. It says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are what? Yes, in Christ. This verse is just reminding us what Joshua 6 teaches us, that God is always faithful to all his promises. And the way for us to persevere whenever we hit a wall is for us to trust God. In fact, I would just say the central idea of this story for us today is this, the walls we face in life fall down as we trust God. So this is, this is how you get past walls. You grow in, in your ability to trust God. You exercise faith in God, what he has told you that he will do. Let's look at three ways that we can do this. Three ways we can trust God and see walls fall down in our lives. Here's the first one. Write this down. Trust that God always wins, even when I can't see it. Trust that God always wins, even when I can't see it. There was a documentary not too long ago about World War II and D-Day. And as part of this, they interviewed someone who had been on the beach in Normandy. And he told them that what he had been thinking when he was fighting was this. He thought, there is no way we're ever going to win this war. This is all just sheer chaos. That's how he felt on the beach. And in the documentary, they immediately cut from that to another interview with a pilot who had been above the beach at Normandy, and uh, he was seeing everything from above. And this man said, I looked around and I thought, there is no way we're going to lose. Same exact battle, same exact moment, totally different perspective. We see a dynamic kind of like this right at the beginning of Joshua 6 between Joshua and God. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. There's this dramatic tension going on here. In verse 2 it says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, you should 
circle that word and, and think about what's going on with that. See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and the fighting men. So God says to Joshua, see or look. Now imagine you're Joshua and you're standing at the base of the wall. What do you see? You see this massive wall looming before you. You also see, as it says in verse 1, that Jericho was tightly shut up. The gates are barred. It looks like there's no way to get in. But then go back to verse 2, where the Lord says to Joshua, I have delivered Jericho. But nothing has happened. Do you see what's going on here? God is speaking in the past tense about something that hasn't happened yet. And this actually speaks to something very important we find in many places throughout the Bible. We see this all through the New Testament. I'm going to give you just one example that's very important. It's in Romans 8, 29 and 30. And I want us to read these two verses out loud together. And in case you're wondering, this means that your lips actually need to move. Okay? So we're all going to read out loud together. This is about you and me as believers in Christ. And here's what Paul writes. Join me. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, stop right there and think about this. I believe God chose me. I believe God called me. I believe God justified me. I mean, the moment I placed my trust in Christ, God, God made me, the Bible says, uh, as righteous as Jesus. I have been made right with God. I am justified. But I know I have not yet been glorified. And if I'm ever confused, I just ask my wife, Dana, and she clears it up for me. <laughs> right? I mean, glorified means made as perfect as Jesus. And it's going to happen to every believer in Christ one day when we're in the presence of God in heaven. And, and honestly, part of my comfort right now is knowing my dad has been glorified. He is enjoying that privilege that God has for all those who trust in Christ. But we today, see, like, we obviously haven't been glorified yet. If you're looking at me saying, well, I can tell you haven't been glorified, Pastor Mike. I'm looking at a room full of people not glorified yet. It's real obvious. It's real obvious, right? But, but again, what does, what does God say in his word? He speaks of our glorification in the past tense. See, the reality is this. To God, your glorification, your perfection in Jesus is as good as done. God sees it as certainly happening. You can put it this way. God speaks in the past tense about my present tensions. See, sometimes, I don't know about you, but I look at myself and think, I just keep repeating the same sins over and over again. It's like I'm not making real progress like I should towards being like Jesus but God looks at you and he looks at me in Christ and he says, it's a done deal. God has seen your future. God knows his grace will be sufficient for you. God knows you will be one day perfected into Christ's likeness. You will be glorified. And that doesn't mean there will never be tough times here on earth, but it does mean you will be okay. It means that God's promised land is yours. It means that you have a destiny 
that is assured. And all that means you can move forward with confidence, knowing that God speaks in past tense about those battles that you are currently fighting in your life. I just want to ask you, Southwinds, isn't that good? Amen. Amen. I needed to hear that today, and I'm sure you, many of you did as well. Here's the second truth. Walls in my life fall down when I trust that God's plans are best, even when they don't make sense to me. See, we trust God's wisdom, which we find in God's word, even when we don't understand it, even when it doesn't make sense to us, even sometimes when it seems ridiculous. So I have a question to ask you. Have you ever read something in the Bible God says his people are to do and you think to yourself, that's ridiculous? Before you answer that question, I need to remind you, you are in church and God knows your heart and he knows when you're telling the truth and when you're not. I mean, the truth is we all have experienced that. There are things in God's word that just don't make sense to us. It's really interesting. If you go to different cultures around the world, different parts of God's word don't make sense to different cultures. There are some cultures where things that make sense to us don't make sense to them. And in those cultures, certain things that God's word teach make sense to them, doesn't make sense to us. Uh, We all come at this from a finite perspective. And so there are things that we just don't understand. I'll I'll give you some example of what what it's like for us here. Um, God's word says clearly, only find sexual intimacy within the covenant of marriage. That's taught clearly in Scripture, right? Let me just ask you, does that command make sense in 2018 America? No, it does not. Most people think that's ridiculous. Some of you here right now think that's ridiculous, but that's what God's Word says. That's what God tells us is best for us. Will we trust that His plans are best even when they don't make sense to us? God's word says, practice honesty and integrity at work. Does that make sense? God, God says, don't cheat, don't cut corners, don't tear down your adversaries to get ahead. I mean, does that make sense to most of the people that we work with in our culture today? No. I mean, many of us have heard people say, if you don't cut some corners, you're never going to get ahead. See, that's a command that God gives us that doesn't make sense. God's word says this. He says to all his people, live as a generous person. Tithe 10% from all that I have given to you. Give uh, out of your income into my kingdom work, realizing that what you have all comes from me. And then God says to his people, you will be happier if you give. That doesn't make sense to most people. And you know why I know? I know that because most of us, probably in this room, don't practice those things. Now, I just have to tell you, if you're feeling kind of guilty about something related to this, you know, don't think that I have knowledge about this. That's just the Holy Spirit making you feel guilty, okay? Because I don't know when anyone here gives. But I know that most of us don't accept that because if we believe that, I think we would practice what God says. In fact, it's actually Jesus who makes the clearest statement about this is in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 35, where Jesus says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And yet so many of us don't believe that because it doesn't make sense to us 
How can I be better off? How can I be happier if I have less? See, the real question in all of these cases and in many more is, will you trust God? Now, let's come back to Joshua. Can you imagine what the Israelites must have thought when they heard God's battle plans? Look again at verses 3 through 5. God was extremely detailed with his instructions. Uh, It says, march around the city once, just once, with all the armed men. Do this for how many days? Six days. Have how many priests? Seven priests carry trumpets of what kind of horns? Ram's horns. And where were they going to stand? In front of the ark. And then he says, on the seventh day, march around the city how many times? Seven times on one day, and now with the priest blowing the trumpets. He says, when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse, and the people will go up, every man straight in. It's very detailed. In verses 6 and 7, I won't read those, Joshua passes those plans on. Now, I just want to ask you a question. Do you think those plans made sense to the people? No. I mean, if you stop and stand back some and look at what was being said, it doesn't make sense to anybody, right? I mean, if you're the priest, you know, you got the trumpets, you're, you're, you might be wondering, well, how come we're in the front? How come the soldiers aren't in front of us, right? Where are those soldiers, And then the soldiers are wondering, why are we just walking around the city? Um, What good will walking around the city do? And what's up with putting the musicians in front, right? Because think about it. Military people do not look at a challenging military objective and go, hmm, let's get the band. Put them in front. (laughs) Military people don't think double-walled fortress city, impregnable for centuries now, What are the musicians doing? I mean, this makes no sense. So why did God do it this way? Well, I think it's real clear. God wanted him to know this. Marching around Jericho and blowing trumpets and shouting actually had zero to do with the walls falling down. You see that? God did it all. 100%. We don't know how he did it. Maybe he made an earthquake happen at that moment. Maybe he just blew a little bit and the walls just fell down. We don't know what he did, how he did it, but he did it. And here's the truth. The wall didn't fall because they walked. It fell because God worked. And this is where that old song gets it wrong. Are you going to help me out this time? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho. Jericho, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. Now, the wall has fallen, but has Joshua or anybody in Israel fought? No. That's why the song got it wrong. It wasn't because they walked or they fought or they did anything. It was because God worked. So why did God have a march? Well, important concept applies to many areas of our lives. You can write this down. God often asks us to show physical signs of spiritual commitment. This is part of how God works in our lives. Outward signs of inward trust in him. And in this case, God was asking the Israelite people to publicly show they trusted him. He was going to do all the work. 
but he wanted them to demonstrate that they trusted him and to do it in a way that other people could see. You say, are there any parallels like that for us today? There are lots. Let me give you just two. Um, One of them is baptism. You know, we teach here, um, as all Orthodox uh, Christian churches teach, that we are saved completely by grace apart from works, right? We, we receive God's forgiveness, God's eternal life by his grace. But God asks his followers to signify what has happened internally by entering into the baptismal waters and to be baptized as a demonstration publicly of that inward faith. Baptism doesn't save you. But it's kind of like the Israelites marching around the wall, blowing trumpets. It shows our trust in Christ in a public way. I'll give you another example. The Lord's Supper, which we're going to share in in just a few minutes. Again, Jesus accomplished 100% of the work of our justification and glorification on the cross. But as we take the Lord's Supper publicly, it displays our trust in him. Why does God have us do this? Well, it's because he made us and he knows that we need this. God has made us to be physical and mental and spiritual and emotional unity. Sometimes we want to pull those components apart, but they are not to, meant to be seen in any way separately. And God knows that we, when we demonstrate our inner trust in an outward way, it brings life and encouragement into our lives. And when we do it together, we look around. And we see other people that are doing the same thing, placing their trust in God, and it encourages us. We encourage each other. God asks us to show outwardly our trust in him that's inward in our hearts. There's another way this second point applies, and it's this. One thing the archaeologists revealed that had not been known before was that Jericho is not a large city. They discovered it was more like a fort or a keep. And probably only about 150 soldiers could, could actually live inside those walls. Uh, most of the people that would have been part of the Jericho kingdom probably spent most of their time living in the fields surrounding uh, this area where they did, you know, uh, grew their crops. The people inside Jericho were the king uh, and the soldiers and, of course, uh, Rahab and her place of business, you know, other support services, so to speak. Um, But that fort, that garrison, that's what stood between them and the promised land. And they were kind of stuck in that place, and they had to get past that fort, or or they wouldn't make any progress. How does that apply to us? Well, we, we don't usually fight physical fortresses today as believers, but we fight mental and emotional and spiritual fortresses, don't we? Check this out. This is in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5. It says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. That word stronghold means fort, military outpost, military garrison, just like Jericho. Paul goes on, we demolish what? We demolish arguments. And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive what? Every thought 
to make it obedient to Christ. He's using the analogy of a fortress like Jericho to represent thoughts that oppose where God wants you to go in Christ. For example, you may have in your mind a little stronghold that, that, that periodically is like launching arrows against you in your mind. Maybe you hear things like, you should just give up because you're pathetic. Maybe you hear things like, you're a loser, you're never going to amount to anything. Maybe you hear things like, no one really loves you. Some of you find yourself sometimes thinking, you know, I've had such a string of bad luck in my life, God really must hate me. (laughs) Any of those things sound familiar to any of us? See, sometimes, it's quite interesting, sometimes the stronghold isn't even real. I was thinking this week, some of you know about uh, like the electric fences that you put in your yard to keep your dog in your yard. Anybody ever use one of those? You have the electric dog collars. You know know what I'm talking about, right? Um, I was curious, anybody ever think of using those on your kids? (laughs) Don't do that. I'm not encouraging that. I'm just wondering. But you know, you know how they work. You put the fence up and it's got a thing. And, and if the collar goes outside the fence, if the dog goes outside the fence wearing the collar, the dog gets a little zap, right? And, and so over time, the dog begins to learn, this is the, the place I go to. And he learns to stop. He doesn't want to get a zap. And it's kind of interesting with a lot of dogs, um, if they wear the collar enough, you can take the collar off. And they are not going past that line because they think they're going to get zapped. I think kind of like that, some of us feel things and think things that aren't even really real. Some of us may have this false sense of shame. Or maybe we have false guilt, a stronghold of shame, a stronghold of guilt. Now, those of you in recovery I know there's a phrase that gets used in recovery called stinking thinking, right? So how do we fight these strongholds? How do we demolish them? Paul says we don't use the weapons of this world. Paul says we use and we fight with the word of God. That's how we fight. Same way that Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. He depended on what God said, God's word. And so if you hear you're a loser you realize that is a fortress in your mind and you, for you to go where God wants you to go, you have to get past that. And so you fight against that with the arrow of God's word. You say, if God is for me, who can be against me? Romans 8. Or maybe you've just been hearing, you should quit. You're never gonna succeed. This is never gonna happen. Then you launch back an arrow from God's word from Galatians 6 that says, um, I will reap a harvest if I do not give up. Or maybe you hear a message that says, you're worthless. And if you hear that, you can say, you know what? I have a pastor named Mike, and he preached a whole series, five weeks, called My True Selfie, when we talked about that. And I know I am not worthless. All those scriptures, remember that we studied not too long ago, that say, I am a precious son or daughter of God. Do you believe that? That you are a saint 
that God has forgiven you your sins and he has washed you clean and he has made you holy. Do you believe that? And if you have times where you struggle believing that, then you learn those scriptures and you memorize those scriptures and you meditate on them and you shoot them back at Satan and, and his demons who come against you. That's how you fight spiritually. You fight with the weapons of God's word. We go against strongholds with the word of God. See, we don't just take it. We, we enter into the promised land that God has for us by speaking truth to lies and, and obeying and living out what God teaches us in his word. Does that make sense? Well, let's wrap this up. Third thing, third lesson. Walls fall down when I trust that God's timing is perfect, even when I am tired of waiting. Now, think about this. This is verses 14 through 16. In verse 14, it says, they did this for six days. And just imagine you were a soldier. I'm pretty confident that you know, all of the specifics of the command from God didn't filter down to every single soldier in the army. And so I, I think it's probably likely that a lot of soldiers didn't exactly know what was going to happen. And so you get up at dawn on the first day. You march around the city. Remember, it's not that big. They probably did that in 30 minutes. And before you know it, you haven't even fought a battle, and Joshua is sending out the commands that everybody can go back to their tent. And you're like, uh, it's only 6 a.m. <laughs> Are we doing anything else? Maybe you, you think, okay, Joshua just wanted to get the lay of the land. We're going to fight a battle tomorrow. But the next day you walk around you know, for a few minutes, and you get sent back to your tents again. And then that happens on day three, and day four, and day five, and day six. And some of you are thinking, Joshua is a lunatic. I mean, like, what is up? You realize that God could have done all this on day one, right? I mean, why did he wait a week? Well, the story doesn't say. (laughs) But you have to wonder, if God had let them win right away, they might have thought they did it. And sometimes God has to bring us to a place where we realize it is not about us, not about our plans, not about our intelligence, not about our cleverness, not about our strength. It is about God, and it is about God's timing. I want you to know something. I am talking to you. If you feel like you're on lap two or three or four or five, and you're finding yourself thinking, I don't know what's going on. What's happening? Why is this taking so long? I am walking, and it is not working. Well, just because your progress isn't obvious doesn't mean God isn't working. Just because your progress isn't obvious doesn't mean God has forgotten you. Just because your progress isn't obvious does not mean that God isn't blessing you even right now. Because look what happens next. This is verse 15. It says, On the seventh day they got up at daybreak and they marched around the city seven times in the same manner. And all those thoughts I was kind of relaying to you. Don't you think they were thinking of even more now? What is going on? We're doing the same thing again, except we're doing it a lot of times today, but nothing is happening. Nothing's happening. Don't you think somebody was thinking that? And yet, look at verse 16. The seventh time around, when the priest shouted the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and it all happens. The walls collapse in a moment. Look at verse 20. 
When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the walls collapsed. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city. You know, I don't know what's going on in your life, okay? But I am very confident right now that there's at least one of you here, and probably more than that, and right now you are ready to give up. You're done. But as I heard someone say in reference to this story, four words that I want you to hear. Don't stop on six. Don't stop on six. You're on day one, day two, day three, four, five, and, and like you're sick of this. But what if this is day six and your breakthrough is just about to happen? Last year, some of you remember this, Dana and I traveled uh, to Germany, and while we were there, we, we, we walked around Berlin one of the days, and uh, that afternoon, we found ourselves at the side of the Berlin Wall. And I was reminded about that wall, how this wall for about 30 years kept millions of people trapped uh, to a repressive communist government. And, and nobody ever thought during that time that this wall was ever going to fall. But then in 1987, you remember when President Ronald Reagan made that famous speech in front of that wall where he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. We were walking along a sidewalk in that area, and all of a sudden there was this big plaque embedded in the sidewalk, about three feet square, and it had a picture of President Reagan, and it had his words and the dates. And that spot, I have a picture of it, is exactly where he gave that speech, exactly where he expressed those words. And of course, within a few years, though nobody had thought it would ever happen, that wall came down. That wall came down. See, in our lives, so many times, we don't know God's timing, do we? But we are called to trust God. Just um, 10 days ago now, the day that my dad died, we were all at my mom's house. We were all in that room where he died. And um, his body was gone. And Dana and I had just remembered a little while before this that this was the day we were going to get a call. Now, some of you have heard this, many of you have not, but our daughter, Abby, um, is pregnant with our first grandchild. We found this out a couple months ago. We're super excited about this, as you can imagine. And I, I just want to give you advance warning. You will be seeing many, many, many pictures of our grandchild because our grandchild is going to illustrate many truths in the Bible, I am confident. Um, so just get yourself ready to learn. Um, but we had known for about three weeks that on that day, Abby and Chad, our son-in-law, were going to go to the doctor, and they were going to do an ultrasound, and they were going to find out if it was a boy or a girl. And so about 2 o'clock, Dana's phone rings. It's Abby. She puts her on speakerphone, and, and my family's kind of around. You know, we're all there in this room, and everybody listened, and Abby told us, It's a boy! And we all cheered and clapped and jumped. And it was such a beautiful blessing that on the day that my dad died, God shared with us this news about new life that was coming. 
See, God does things so amazing sometimes to encourage us and strengthen us. He is so good. He blesses us in so many ways. We need to trust him. We need to trust his timing. You know, I used to be, I used to be more impressed, I think, with people who would step out in faith and try, you know, to start stuff. But now sometimes I feel like I'm more impressed when people persevere through all the ups and downs. Spouses who stay married 59 years like my mom and my dad. Parents who never stop praying for their children. People who just keep going, keep walking with God through disease and through depression and all kinds, all kinds of walls. See, I want you to hear this and I want you to say this because even if you don't need to hear this today, there's somebody around you who, who needs to hear this. I want you to say those four words, don't stop on six. We're going to say them together and we're going to say them loud. Pretend we're Israel at the wall, okay? Don't stop on six. Ready? Don't stop on six. Maybe you needed to hear that. Maybe that is God's word to you today. Just think again, those people for six and a half days, nothing happened, not a single stone moved. And, and that really is like life, isn't it? This is why, I don't know if you thought about this, but this is why it's so hard to get in shape. I mean, don't you think everyone would work out if you had like immediate rewards instantly? You know, you did one push-up and it's like, pop, there's a bicep. <laughs> that would be cool. Or you did three crunches and it's like, ooh, I got abs. But it doesn't work like that, does it? I mean, you have to work out and work out, and you can go weeks and weeks, maybe months sometimes, and it hardly makes any difference. And then suddenly one day you go, wow. Or parenting. Sometimes parents of very young children find themselves thinking, am I going to be the parent of a two-year-old forever? <laughs> right? And then one day... You're walking her down the aisle. And then one day, she calls and says, it's a boy. And that's the way it works. Day after day, night after night, walking with God, nothing seems to change, and then it all changes, sometimes all at once. So don't stop on six. Don't stop on six. Maybe you want to stop. Maybe you're just saying, God, let me see one brick, just one brick fall. See, this is exactly the way the Bible tells us it's going to be. This is Galatians 6, 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. See, sometimes you see nothing until the breakthrough moment. So keep walking, keep trusting, even when nothing seems to be changing. A big truth in this story is this. Obedience is my responsibility. Outcome is God's responsibility. And again, I've been telling us all day, reminding us God is always faithful to all his promises. God is at work in your life and you can trust him. And even if you feel like I've been a Christian and I'm walking and nothing's really changing, maybe you look at your life and you think I'm the real problem. I mean, I've been walking with God for a long time and I'm still not where I need to be. I have another verse for you today. Philippians 1.6. Claim this promise from God. God promises. He 
who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. See, that is a promise. Amen? So do not give up. Keep walking because, friend, listen to me right now. You are closer than you think you are right now. So don't stop on six. Would you bow your heads and we're going to pray together?